Well, Lanny, thank you for your testimony. You definitely, uh, you, you know, you get it. You understand what we're all about. You understand the Christian faith, the fight that, you're, that we're in. Hearing about your struggle with your heart about God's sovereignty. And right there, I, I, I say to myself, she understands. That's the fight that I'm involved in, fight that I'm raging, uh, raging in. And um, really encouraged by sharing with us what God has done and is doing in your heart. And even your pursuit to honor Christ at work. Uh, in a difficult environment. Praise God for that. May all of us um, strive to be examples at our places of influence so that God might be exalted and glorified. Well, praise God to have you at our body. Look forward to many years of growth and ministry together and glorifying God together. Well, it feels like we're um, maybe a week before the Olympics or something because next week is our church-wide retreat. Um, I think we've got... 140 some odd people signed up for the retreat. Um, it's going to be just a wonderful time. If you've never been to one of our retreats before, it's just like Sunday worship, but five times that, five times the food, five times the folks, the fellowship, activities, you know, just songs, prayer. It's a veritable spiritual feast. I, I, lo- I love our church retreats, um, especially when I'm not speaking. <laughs> I love it when I'm not speaking because... I can just, you know, we have no ping pong this year, but I can just play ping pong with the people and just hang out, be in my shorts and tank tops, you know, and <laughs> no tank tops, but just fellowship with you and just be a brother in Christ with all of you and spend time in fellowship. I love our retreats, my wife as well, and so look forward to just four days of just great time together. And also be in prayer for our Kazakhstan team. Our six men and women are leaving the day after the retreat, I think eight days from now. Uh, eight or nine days, they're leaving on the mon- uh, Tuesday after the retreat, gone for two weeks, spending time with Pastor Baljan and Salvation Way Church. Marcus will be leading the team. So if you'd keep them in your prayers, I um, would greatly appreciate it. Well, let's con- we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And you know, after that just incredible study in John 12 with the glory of God, uh, I wanted to kind of just kind of study a passage, not not really get into a whole wrestling match with the text and chase a dragon all over the place, but just study the Bible and let the Bible speak for itself. And I, I, intend, I try that every week, but just studying John 13 this week, it was another, it's a great wrestling match in my heart. Just the example that I was confronted with, with the example of Christ, it is, I mean, it's indescribable what Christ um, Christ's service, Christ's example, Christ's, the extent of Christ's love towards the believers and towards us, as revealed in John 13, it's, it is an incredible sight to see, and I hope that and pray that you'll be uh, challenged and impacted as uh, I have been in, our, in my study of John 13. I want to start us off. I often have the unique privilege to proclaim the gospel to many people, whether it's at a funeral, at a wedding, or at 24-hour fitness after a nice game of basketball, they, I ask them what they do, and then they inevitably ask me what I do, and I tell them I'm a pastor, and bam, right there, you know, is the way to the gospel. And I, I love sharing the gospel for many reasons, but one of the chief reasons why I love sharing the gospel is I get to talk about Jesus Christ. I, mean, I get to, outside of church, outside of Bible study, talk about 
our Lord and Savior. And chief among them, what I love talking about Christ, is not really so much His miracles. I don't really share about Him feeding 6,000 people or Him walking on water. I mean, sometimes I might, you know, it just you know, leads to that. But I don't really, you know, overtly or, or intentionally talk about His healing of the leper or raising of Lazarus. I, my heart just naturally gravitates towards the character of our Lord and particularly His humility and His love. I love talking about the humility of Christ and Christ's love for sinners. I think when we compare Christ to other world leaders, other religious leaders, I mean, He stands head and shoulders above them all. I mean, it's incomparable. It's not even worth comparing when we talk about humility and the love of Christ. Simply, there's no comparison. No one comes close to the unreachable heights of Christ's love and to the unending depth of Christ's humility. We know from Scripture that Christ's humility began long before His incarnation. Christ covenanted with God the Father to humble Himself before the creation of the world, before there was even an earth, before we even existed. Um, Christ agreed and affirmed to humble Himself and become incarnate as a man and to become a servant and not just a servant, but to die a criminal's death on the cross. I mean, that's, that's how far-reaching Christ's humility begins. And the depths of Christ's love is seen just in His life, in His teachings, in His ministry. I mean, just lack of time, I'll point to just few things, but in Luke chapter 7, 34, His enemies, to, uh, to kind of disparage Him, to vilify Him, to to label him in a, in a negative way, they call him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, what they intended as a negative label to all of us here is the, one of the most beautiful titles of Christ. That he is a friend of tax collectors. People who were ostracized by their society. They were outcasts. They were considered traitors. Everybody pointed their fingers at tax collectors and said, there goes the worst of sinners. I mean, there goes the scum of the earth. I mean, they are scum. And Christ said, I'm your friend. And even those who were known as sinners, I mean, just by their dress, by their language, just by their outward expression of their, of their lives, their attitudes, their behavior, it was clear they were not the religious. They were not the Sunday-going, church-going type. They were the sinners of this culture. And Christ said, I'm your friend. And we see Christ's love there. Even in Matthew, especially in Matthew 8, 2 and 3, and I love this, where a leper comes to Christ and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Talking about Christ's desires. I know you are able to make me clean. But the leper's question to Christ was, Are you willing? Do you desire me to be cleansed? Is that in your heart? Is there compassion? Is there pity? Is there in your heart a love for me, a sinner? And Christ's response was simple. I am willing. And he could have healed this leper from far away. He could have said, Okay, stay where you are. Right? I don't want to be ritually unclean, preventing me to go to the temple and worship God. Stay where you are, and I will heal you. No, instead, he went out to him, he reached out, and he touched this man. And no doubt, he has not been touched for many years, perhaps decades. He has not felt the touch of another human being. 
But what does Christ do? He reaches out and he physically touches this man as an expression of his love towards this sinner. And he said, I am willing. And immediately he was cured of his leprosy. So we can go to many places in the New Testament to highlight the humility of Christ and to highlight the love of Christ towards sinners. But here in John 13, we see a beautiful mixture of these two uniquely traits of Christ. We see them blended together wonderfully in this simple act of Christ, getting on his hands and his knees, taking a towel and water and filling it in a basin and washing the feet of his own disciples. We see the chief two traits, at least to me, of Christ his humility and his love. This was a profound object lesson of love and humility in action. I think we see the depth of that on the cross, the height of that on the cross, but the extent of his love. We see it here when he washes the feet of his disciples. We see the wideness. Say that again. We see the wideness of Christ's tender and humble love towards all of us. And we enter now upon what many believers in every age have regarded as the most precious portion of the gospel. Bible students throughout the scriptures have spent hours upon hours on John 13. This is arguably maybe one of the most highlighted portions of the gospel of John. The most underlined, most meditated upon. Because what we see here is just so beautiful and amazing. It warrants special attention by all Christians. If any, anyone has been touched by the grace and love of Christ, this passage requires our special attention. All believers must take care to lovingly unfold the numerous spiritual graces that are found in this passage. And especially, a special call goes out to those who are in positions of leadership. I personally call all the fathers, husbands, all the men. If you are of the male gender, please look at John 13. All the elders, all the pastors, all church leaders. We ought to bathe this passage in our minds. An important example for us to consider. I think in every wedding I performed thus far at Cornerstone, I've either directly or indirectly alluded to this passage. Because for a husband, there is no, there is no more important pa- passage for us to consider as we lead our wives, for fathers, for any kind of leaders, employers, managers, older siblings. As leaders, who do we look to as spiritual leadership? Put away all those secular leadership books, right? You know, who moved the cheese, Right, one minute manager, Jesus as CEO, put those books away. Instead, open John 13. We'll find here truths about leadership that'll, that has seen comparable in terms of its richness, richness of its teaching to us. Well, let's, let me just set it up for you briefly. The background and context of John 13, 1 through 20. Um, there's a key transition between chapter 12 and chapter 13. If you go back to verse 36 of chapter 12, you'll find that this is what Apostle John says. 
when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Them meaning the world. From this point on, his public ministry is over. It began in John chapter 2 with his first miracle in the wedding at Cana. When he turned water into wine, his glory was revealed to the world and his public ministry started. Here in John 12, 36, after he declared the hardness of the hard leaders of Israel, of the many people of Israel, he removed himself from public ministry like Moses, removing himself from Pharaoh because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, because the heart of the Israelites were so hardened, Christ removed himself. And starting in chapter 13, he, for the next five chapters, he begins his private ministry towards his disciples. Chapters 13 through 17 is called by Bible students as the upper room discourse. Here in these chapters, we find him intimately teaching his disciples. And we'll get, I mean, we'll immerse ourselves in the next five chapters for months to come. I mean, it is just a wonderful time. I mean, wonderful truths. I mean, rich, beautiful truths in, in, these, in these words. But we need to understand the historical context. It is Thursday evening. In John 12, Christ entered Jerusalem on Sunday. Apostle John is silent pretty much Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. He takes up the scene. He brings us to Thursday night, day before the crucifixion. In John 13, verse 1, the sun has gone down. It is time for dinner. And here is a scene. The disciples have come from Bethany. Bethany is a small town two miles removed from Jerusalem. So they made this long two-hour journey by foot into the city of Jerusalem to have their Passover meal. And it was, as they come to dinner, their feet are obviously dirty because they're all wearing sandals. They're exposed to dirt. You know, it's dirt and mud of the street. Uh, and it was customary at this time because tables then at ancient Near East, even now, they're not tables like we have today, like sitting tables. They're more like reclining tables. They're lower tables with cushions and like a sofa outlining on the sides of the table. And everybody would come inside, remove their sandals, and recline. So their, their feet would be all over the place as they sit together. So it was customary before every meal, every dinner especially, to wash, to have their feet washed. The washing of feet was a very dreaded and menial task performed by slaves. And not just slaves. Evidently, there was a pecking order among slaves. There was a white-collar slave and a blue-collar slave and then the entry-level slave and an intern slave, right? And then the lowest slave, that was his job, to wash the feet. I mean, a white-collar managerial slave would never demean himself to wash the feet of, of others. It was the lowest slave's job to wash the feet. I mean, because the feet, not only was it the dirtiest part of the body, but it symbolized just, it symbolized something that was shameful, something that was uh, just, something that was dirty and uh, just unfit to touch. Uh, Middle East culture, that's, that's their culture. You remember Saddam Hussein's, when, when the regime fell and the statues fell and they were, dragging his statue all over Baghdad, all over Iraq, and these, these men and children would come and they would follow along the statue. And what did they do? They either did two things. They either spat at the statue, which was you know, just 
I think a very offensive thing to do. Or they took off their sandals or their shoes, and what do they do? They hit the face of Hussein's statue with the soles of their shoes. And that's the most offensive thing you could do in that culture. Why? Because feet are considered something that's very, very dirty, very shameful. And to hit someone with your shoe was considered the highest offense. So it was the strongest way for them to, to express their hatred and disgust towards Saddam Hussein. Likewise, it was the, the most dreaded task to wash, even touch, but let alone wash the feet. That's why when John the Baptist was talking about the coming Christ, like how did he express his unworthiness towards Christ? I mean, what, what picture did he draw to, to highlight to us? He was the last Old Testament prophet, Christ called him the greatest born of the son of, among children of man. And yet, how did he describe his relationship with Christ? He said, I am unworthy to untie the laces of his sandals. I mean, that's how lowly I am. I'm not worthy to touch his feet. That's how low I am compared to Christ. Well, so here they are. They're all ready to eat their meal. Everything's set, the food is set, the towel is there, the water is there, the wash basin is there, but no servants, no slaves. And so, as they're sitting down, apparently an argument began among the disciples. They started to kind of talk to one another and began to quarrel. What was the focal point of their argument? Luke 22 24 says, A dispute also started among them over which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So they're sitting there, and they're, they're approaching the table, and they're saying, Peter, well, I'm, the, I'm the, one of the first to follow Christ, so I should be sitting near Christ. Maybe John in the argument, you know, I'm the beloved disciple. I'm his favorite. I'm, I'm sitting next to him, Right? Bartholomew, you should wash our feet. You know, you're the youngest, right? Bartholomew says, no, no, I'm not the youngest. Thomas is the youngest, right? He's younger than me by three days. And, this, and they start to argue with one another, look, who is the greatest? And apparently, they all know their feet need to be washed. They all know somebody has to do this dreaded chore because there's no servants around. So, but they all refuse. They almost ignore that basin is there, that this task needs to be done. Well, I see our Lord listening to this and seeing this. And He stands up and He takes the water, takes the towel, tackle this one by one, and He approaches disciples to wash their feet. And all of a sudden, silence. Crawling is over. Discussion is ended. They are shocked by what they see. Now, before we get to the actual washing of the feet, John reveals to us Jesus' mindset that propelled him, compelled him to wash the feet of the disciples. It was not out of a grumbling heart. All right, I'll do it. Oh, man, give me that water. Give me that towel. I'll, I'll do it. Give me your feet. You know? It's like, oh, man, I'm hungry already. <laughs> you know, let's eat. So I'll just get this over with. Like, it wasn't out of vain glory. You know, look at me. You know, here I go. I'm going to wash the feet. John, you know, make sure you write this down because I want, I want this to be recorded. If I'm going to do it, people should remember it. No, that was not Christ's mindset. 
<coughs> Christ's mindset is revealed in John chapter 13, verse 1, verse 3, and second part of verse 1. His first reason was, verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The first compelling reason in Christ's heart was he knew it was time to go back to the Father. He knew that his hour of glory was near, that his time for earthly ministry was almost over. He knew. In a sense, washing feet not a big deal for him because within 24 hours he would be enduring torture on a cross. He would die for these men. He would give his life. He would spill blood for their sins. So it was time. So for him, he was willing to give his life for these men to wash their feet. I mean, it's big. But our Lord knew time was near. Secondly, he knew he was given all authority. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And this is amazing. It was with a full knowledge that the Father had committed all power into his hands, that he had been given all majesty, all glory, all power. And it was with this understanding that he chose to serve and humble himself and wash their feet. This makes his humiliation more striking and more admirable. Right? Jesus knew that he was not just the head of this table. He knew he was the head of every table in the world. That he was the king of all kings. And he was Lord of all lords. With this full knowledge that God had committed that to him. When, when God the Father said, I have glorified, I will glorify it again. God promising that to his son. With that knowledge, he condescended to wash the feet of the disciples. If it had been a mere human teacher or prophet, it would be remarkable. But it was, we remember the dignity of his nature revealing the depth of his humility, depth of his love. And the final reason, final mindset, second part of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Washing the feet of the disciples was an expression of his love for them. Isn't that amazing? He wanted to show that his love abounded in all his life, in all his time with them in ministry, and even to the end. He wanted to express his love by washing their feet. Let me read to you what Arthur Pink says about this passage. <coughs> Quote, this is the amazing thing. Jesus loves his own, knowing everything. He loves his own, knowing that he is sovereign, knowing that he is about to leave this earth and return to his Father. He loves his own, knowing that they have been arguing about who is the greatest. Knowing that they are about to forsake him and flee for their lives. Knowing that Peter will deny him three times. It is one thing for people to love us, who does not know all of our wicked deeds. Who does not know our wicked thoughts, our wicked motivations. It is another for the holy God of heaven to love us, knowing every wicked thing we have done and will do. 
This is indeed amazing love. What a comfort to the Christian, knowing that our Lord's love is constant and unchanging. That our Lord's love is not based on ignorance of our sinfulness and His exalted state. Our Lord's love is based upon His exalted state and based upon His knowledge, intimate knowledge of us. And He loves us, and He loves us to the end. What security, what grace, what a Savior. His love is infinite. His compassion is never exhausted. His love is a love that passes, passes knowledge. It was with that mindset, gee, our Lord, knowing the time is near, He is exalted and glorified. He seeks to express this love, unending, full knowledge, love to his disciples. That verse 4 and 5, our Lord washes their feet. Look at verse 4 and 5. And, you know, whatever we're struggling with in our, in our hearts, the petty sinfulness, selfishness, and self-centeredness that we all struggle with, our, our shallowness, just our pride. That's the struggle, right? We need to look at verses 4 and 5. Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. And he began to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The details of the action are pictured one by one. The scene had obviously left an indelible impression on John who was sitting next to Christ. Therefore, John intends to graphically record this event moment by moment. He desires ways described that our hearts will linger in these two verses for an extended time. Verse 4, our Lord stands up. No one else is willing to serve, but Jesus is desiring to serve. He takes off his outer garment. He lays it aside. He takes a towel, a servant's towel, and he ties it to his waist and he pours water into a basin, and he approaches the disciples. He gets on his knees. He takes each foot by the hand, and he begins to wash. And then he begins to dry. And then he moves on to the next disciple. And throughout this time, not a word is spoken by anyone. <coughs> I would guess that all of them are just shocked, utter disbelief at what is occurring. Our Lord, He is living out what He taught. He had taught clearly. Matthew twenty twenty eight, Mark ten forty five. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but He came to serve. That was the purpose of His incarnation. He came as a servant to serve sinful man, to love them, to serve them, and ultimately give His life as a ransom for their sins. Well, let me give verse 6, Peter's denial. When he came to Peter, we don't know if Peter was the second or the last. We don't know. But when he came to Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? In the Greek, every word here is emphatic. You, Lord, wash 
My feet in the Greek, you and my, are juxtaposed next to each other. You know, wash you, my feet, it is, to Peter, incomprehensible. To Peter, it is unacceptable. There is in here an, a core essence of Peter's humility, of his undeservedness, unworthiness for Christ to wash his feet. I mean, that's how Peter began his ministry in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when he was in the Sea of Galilee, and Christ revealed himself by the miracle of catching the fish. How did Peter respond? Peter said, go away from me, Lord. I dare not be in your presence. Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. Well, here again, on the night before the crucifixion, Peter says, you wash my feet. There's an inference here that Peter doesn't want any part of this. Christ answered him, what I am doing now, verse 7, you do not understand. But afterward, you understand. And then Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Peter says, this will not happen. And see, here is the subtlety of pride. How pride piggybacks on humility. How pride is by its nature self-deceptive. Until now, Peter's modesty, humility was excusable. His, his resistance was understandable. But to say that he will not allow Christ to wash his feet because he is unworthy. That is not humility. That's false humility. That is pride. To reject Christ washing his feet because he is undeserving is false humility because that's the point. Peter is unworthy. What Christ is doing is not because they deserve it. It's not because they're worthy to have their feet washed. That's the whole point of Christ's act of washing their feet. It's an act of love, an act of humility. If Peter denies, rejects Christ washing his feet because he's unworthy, then he's rejecting all of Christ because everything Christ does for Peter and does for us is out of grace. Right? Everything. If we at any point say, you know what, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to receive that because I'm unworthy. We don't realize everything that Christ does for us. Foremost of all, our salvation. The cleansing of our sins. The forgiveness of our sins. The salvation granted to us in Christ. All of it is by grace. To reject grace, in part, is to reject all grace, said Calvin. To reject grace in part is to reject all grace. Well, Christ says, if, you, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. You have no communion with me. It was, a, it was like a slap to Peter's face. Christ saying, if you will not, if you reject me washing your feet, you're rejecting everything I am. We have... No fellowship. So, you know, you got in a way, love Peter's heart. Okay, then. Now, wash my face. Wash my, you know, I shampoo my hair, I don't know. But wash my hands. Give me the full, you know, full detailing job here. And Christ says, verse 10, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. 
essentially Christ was affirming Peter's salvation. Christ was saying, you are saved. You've been, you have been cleansed by the word of Christ. You've been regenerated. You've been born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're saved. But as you walk along this earth, your feet gets contaminated by the sins of this world. So from this point on, you don't need to get saved again and again and again. All you need is for your feet to be washed. It was a visual picture of New Testament teaching. Ephesians 5 picks this up, right? Paul picks this up when he says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So Peter's feet was washed by water, literal water. As believers today, how are we cleansed? How are feet cleansed? Right? We're saved. But how do we receive the daily cleansing before God? According to the Bible, it's not confession. According to the Bible, it's through the Word of God. We are washed by God's Word. Highlighting to us the importance of every day studying God's Word, meditating on God's truth, meditating on our need for confession. It is through God's Word that we are cleansed. Well, after he's done, he gives them his commandment, verses 12 through 17. He says in verse 12, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, rabbi and curios, and that's right, that's what I am. If I then, your curios and your rabbi, your didaskalia, your, your teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. And here our Lord employs the argument of greater to lesser. If I, the sovereign God of all creation, love you so much and humble myself to wash your feet, how much more ought you stop arguing about who is greater? Ought you start, stop sizing each other up? competing with one another, judging one another, how much more ought you love one another, serve one another, humble yourself before each other, and love? And then verse 17. This is great. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So I'm sure everyone here is like, yeah, I know this. I, I learned this when I was in children's ministry. This is FWF session one, right? I know this. That's what Christ understands. I think Christ, he knows the heart of man. Christ says, yeah, it's good you know these things. But you are blessed if you do them. And really the challenge, isn't it, is to love one another. I think it's easy to go and I'm going to die for Christ in the mission field. Right? I'm going to go and go on in a blaze of glory and die tomorrow. That's easy. It's hard to stay home and forgive someone who sinned against you, someone who's wronged you. It's hard, right? To turn and, and bear with someone's burdens, care for someone's physical, physical needs, 
to come alongside and, and minister to someone whose heart is hard, whose heart is unyielding. Christ says, you are blessed not by your knowledge, but by your action. And then go down to verses 34 and 35. Here Christ gives us the final command based upon his service. <coughs> A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. It's a new commandment. The old commandment was love each other as you love yourself. That was a standard. Christ says, that commandment is done away with. I give you a new commandment. Love others as I have loved you. Undeservedly, unconditionally, eternally, humbly, sacrificially. That is how I have loved you and that is a standard. And as I have loved you, we are to, as Christians, love fellow Christians. It's a higher standard than we have ever known. And Christ says in verse 35, this is to be the distinguishing mark of believers. By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another. I love this. This is awesome. This is what distinguishes Christians. This is what distinguishes a Christian church. It is not by ritual. It is not by clothing. It is not by some emblem, some tradition, some culture. It's not by some habit or practice. What separates Christians from everyone else in the whole world is simply this. is our love for one another. Our intense, passionate, humble, practical love for fellow believers. See, the world, there is no love in the world. I mean, if you've lived in the world at all, you know there is no true love among friends in the world, true loyalty true commitment, true sacrifice, true humility. It's a lie. It's bankrupt. And we get jaded. We see that in the church. But it must not be a distinguishing, clear attribute of Christians, one that sets us apart from the world. It's not our giftedness. It's not our intelligence. It's not our buildings. It's not our clothing. It's not our abilities, programs, or methods. What sets Christians apart, the church apart, is this. Our love for one another. And that was the testimony of the New Testament church. I mean, the Romans and the Greeks, they would say again and again, see, see how they love one another. That was spoken and stated again and again as they they witnessed the love and the fellowship of Christians. What is this? How they love one another. This is to be the special badge of the professed children of God, of just genuine sacrificial love for one another. Finally, our motivation is found in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Here Christ is talking about the unbreakable unity between the believer and Jesus Christ. The unbreakable unity. In Matthew 25, 31-46, Christ says, at the end of the, in the last day when Christ comes to judge, He will separate the sheep and the goats. 
I don't know, I'll skip the goats. I'll just go to the sheep. You know, and he says the sheep, you know, when I was thirsty, you give me water. When I was hungry, you give me food. When I was naked, you give me clothes. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was in need, you served me. And the sheep will say, when? When did I give you water? When did I clothe you? When did I visit you in prison? When did I meet your need? When did I do that? And Christ said, whatsoever you did, the least of my brethren, fellow Christians, what you did for my fellow Christians, you did unto me. That's our motivation. How we treat Christians is the way we treat Christ. Because as Christ said, there is an unbreakable unity between Christ and His people. There's a Christian song by Keith Green. He says, Jesus says, if you love someone in His name, you are loving Him. Jesus says, if you touch someone in His name, you are touching Him. Jesus says, Jesus says, Jesus says, it's Him. Our love for Christ directly reflected and mediated through our love for one another. That's why First John says, if you say you love Christ, but you don't love fellow believers, you don't love God. No way! Because Christ and a believer are united as one. And that's what Christ says in verse 20, and that is our motivation. What well, are we going to do second hour? We'll go through all the applications, outworkings of this call, commandment to love one another. Look on how we can apply these truths to our lives during our second hour. Let's pray. Lord, as your people, we know what love is. It's not some romantic love. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's not a spiritual high. We know what love is. We see it. In John 13, the example of Christ on his knees, washing the feet of holy sinners. And we see it on the cross. When he cries out to you, Father, he cries out and he prays, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Lord, as believers, we know what love is. But Lord, forgive us for we fall so short of that standard. Forgive us for failing to love others. Forgive us for just soaking it in. In our self-centered, self-esteem culture, forgive us for just soaking it in and meditating on your love for us and enjoying it for our idle pleasures. Lord, we pray that the truth of your love towards us would compel us to show this love to one another, knowing that How we treat one another is the way we're treating you. Lord, we are humbled by your example and we respond by just praising and honoring your name. In Jesus' name we pray.